The following audio is from Shiloh Presbyterian Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. More information about Shiloh Presbyterian Church is available at shilohopc.org. Exodus chapter 28 and verses 1 through 43. Long chapter, but let's worship the Lord by listening carefully to this, the public reading of his word. Exodus 28, beginning in verse 1. Then bring near to you Aaron, your brother, and his sons with him from among the people of Israel to serve me as priests, Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar. And you shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, for glory and for beauty. You shall speak to all the skillful whom I have filled with a spirit of skill, that they may make, that they make Aaron's garments to consecrate him for my priesthood. These are the garments that they shall make, a breastpiece, an ephod, a robe, a coat of checker work, a turban, and a sash. They shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, and his sons to serve me as priests. They shall receive gold, blue, and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen. And they shall make the ephod of gold, of blue, and purple, and scarlet yarns, and of fine twined linen, skillfully worked. It shall have two shoulder pieces attached to its two edges, so that it may be joined together. And the skillfully woven band on it shall be made like it, and be of one piece with it, of gold, blue, and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen. You shall take two onyx stones, and engrave on them the names of the sons of Israel, six of their names on the one stone, and the names of the remaining six on the other stone, in order of their birth. As a jeweler engraves signets, so shall you engrave the two stones with the names of the sons of Israel. You shall enclose them in settings of gold filigree. And you shall set the two stones on the shoulder pieces of the ephod as stones of remembrance for the sons of Israel. And Aaron shall bear their names before the Lord on his two shoulders for remembrance. You shall make settings of gold filigree and two chains of pure gold twisted like cords, and you shall attach the corded chains to the settings. You shall make a breastpiece of judgment in skilled work. In the style of the ephod you shall make it. Of gold, blue, and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen shall you make it. It shall be square and doubled, a span its length, and a span its breadth. You shall set in it four rows of stones. A row of sardius, topaz, and carbuncle shall be the first row. And the second row, an emerald, a sapphire, and a diamond. And the third row, a jacinth, an agate, an amethyst. And the fourth row, a beryl, an onyx, and a jasper. They shall be set in gold filigree. There shall be twelve stones with their names, according to the names of the sons of Israel. They shall be like signets, each engraved with its name for the twelve tribes. You shall make for the breastpiece twisted chains like cords of pure gold, and you shall make for the breastpiece two rings of gold, and put the two rings on the two edges of the breastpiece. And you shall put the two cords of gold in the two rings at the edges of the breastpiece. The two ends of the two cords you shall attach to the two settings of filigree, and so attach it in front to the shoulder pieces of the ephod. You shall make two rings of gold and put them at the two ends of the breastpiece 
on its inside edge next to the ephod. And you shall make two rings of gold and attach them in front to the lower part of the two shoulder pieces of the ephod at its seam above the skillfully woven band of the ephod. And they shall bind the breast piece by its rings to the rings of the ephod with a lace of blue so that it may lie on the skillfully woven band of the ephod so that the breast piece shall not come loose from the ephod. So Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel in the breast breastpiece of judgment on his heart when he goes into the holy place to bring them to regular remembrance before the Lord. And in the breastpiece of judgment you shall put the Urim and the Thummim, and they shall be on Aaron's heart when he goes in before the Lord. Thus Aaron shall bear the judgment of the people of Israel on his heart before the Lord regularly. You shall make the robe of the ephod all of blue. It shall have an opening for the head in the middle of it with a woven binding around the opening like the opening in a garment so that it may not tear. On its hem you shall make pomegranates of blue and purple and scarlet yarns around its hem with bells of gold between them, a golden bell and a pomegranate, a golden bell and a pomegranate around the hem of the robe. And it shall be on the It shall be on Aaron when he ministers, and its sound shall be heard when he goes into the holy place before the Lord, and when he comes out, so that he does not die. You shall make a plate of pure gold and engrave on it, like the engraving of a signet, holy to the Lord. And you shall fasten it on the turban by a cord of blue. It shall be on the front of the turban. It shall be on Aaron's forehead. And Aaron shall bear any guilt from the holy things that the people of Israel consecrate as their holy gifts. It shall regularly be on his forehead that they may be accepted before the Lord. You shall weave the coat and checker work of fine linen, and you shall make a turban of fine linen, and you shall make a sash embroidered with needlework. For Aaron's sons, you shall make coats and sashes and caps. You shall make them for Aaron, excuse me, uh, for glory and beauty, and you shall put them on Aaron your brother and on his sons with him, and, he, and shall anoint them and ordain them and consecrate them that they may serve me as priests. You shall make for them linen undergarments to cover their naked flesh. They shall reach from the hips to the thighs, and they shall be on Aaron and on his sons when they go into the tent of meeting or when they come near the altar to minister in the holy place, lest they bear guilt and die. This shall be a statute forever for him and for his offspring after him. Amen. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's uh, pray and seek his blessing and help. Let's pray. Gracious Father and God, we do ask that you would come to us. Bless us, Father, as we receive your word again this evening. Please make it to be for us a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Would you enlighten our minds and our hearts that we might understand and that we might receive your truth, that we might see and hear and trust and follow our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, walking in the way of your holy covenant by his grace. Hear us, Father, for what we ask for this. In his name, amen. (laughs) 
Well, we continue to uh, make our way through uh, all of the different things pertaining to the tabernacle. This evening we consider the clothing. What were they to wear? What were they to wear? Maybe that's a question you sometimes ask. What am I going to wear? Right? We, we all ask that question because one thing that we all share in common is that we all get up and we put on clothing. It's a part of our lives. Generally, we get dressed every day, I guess, unless it's a sick day and we have an excuse to just stay in our pajamas, which is kind of nice. But generally, we have to wake up and get dressed. Now, I suppose it's also true that, that we are different in terms of what exactly is involved in that Process. I suppose for some people, the question, what will I wear, is answered very quickly and easily, right? This shirt, that pants, this dress, whatever, done, quick, right? For others, uh, the process is not quite so simple. Maybe you're the kind of person who takes much time deciding what to put on. You know, does this look okay? Does this color work with this? Uh, is this nice enough? Is this too nice? What will others be wearing to this Event maybe after finally deciding and getting dressed, you stand in front of the mirror and you say, I need to make an adjustment here or scrap it all and start over again. Well, just imagine what it would have been like deciding what to put on when going into the inner sanctum, the Holy of Holies, into the presence of the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. Thankfully, they didn't have to give it much thought, did they? Not in terms of figuring it out for themselves. Here again, they were to follow the pattern shown them on the mountain. They were to follow God's revealed will here. But in that regard, they were to be very, very careful, very thoughtful and careful to follow exactly what the the Lord had prescribed. Now, we're, we're talking particularly here about the priests and most of our text really uh, speaks particularly to that, the attire of the high priest in particular. It's not until the end there in verses 40 through 44 that it speaks, uh, addresses the regular priest. The regular priests were to wear sort of a, a similar but simplified version of what the high priest would wear. So just coats, sashes, and caps, and linen undergarments. But God wanted the priest, especially the high priest, to to draw near in very particular attire, holy garments in which to draw near. Why was this so important? Well, I'm going to suggest this evening it was so important because it teaches us such important things about Christ and about our union with him. Our simple message this evening is that the holy garments in which Israel's priests were to draw near to the Lord teach us about our union with Christ, about Christ and our union with him. We're going to consider four things this evening about that union. Number one, that we are one with him. Number two, we are justified in him. Number three, we are sanctified in him. Number four, we are glorified in him. We're really considering our union with Christ and all of the benefits, some of the benefits that flow out of that union. I will suggest that all of these things are seen in the holy attire prescribed for the high priest. So let's begin with union with Christ. Our first point, we are one with him. Union with Christ, of course, involves representation. He represents us. 
The high priest represented the people every bit as much as Adam had represented his people, had represented all of us when he acted on our behalf back in the garden, back in the original paradise tabernacle. Representation. The people could not enter into the holy place. Only the high priest could, and of course he only once a year, but he did so representing the people. This taught such an important lesson that God will be approached only through the work of the mediator done on your behalf. God was saying again and again, learn of my provision of a mediator. If you are to draw near to me, it will not be on the basis of anything you do, but only on the basis of what he does on your behalf. He represents you to me. But note this. Our high priest represents us, but he does so not as one who is is distant from us, right? Far from us, separate from us. No, we are one with him. Note how that is reflected by what we see in the text this evening. When the high priest entered into the holy place, there's a sense in which he was not entering in all by himself. He was bringing the people with him. They all entered in him. That's a truth that's communicated in such a beautiful way as we see it in the text. We see it in the ephod. And in the Bible, when we think of an ephod, we might think about that, that sort of piece of, of clothing which, which covers only the torso, right? From the thigh up to the shoulders, it leaves the, the arms and the legs sleeveless. It's light. David was able to dance before the, the, the Lord when the ark was being moved. He was dressed in a linen ephod. Well, this priestly ephod is clearly more than that. Seems that it was something of a ceremonial vest worn over outer clothes. We see in verse 7 there that it had shoulder pieces. But note in verse 9, they were to take two onyx stones and engrave on them the names of the sons of Israel. Verse 10 says, six of their names on the one stone and the names of the remaining six on the other stone in order of their birth. We see in verse 11 that those names were to be engraved like a seal on those two stones and set in gold filigree settings. Filigree is a form of intricate metalwork used in, in jewelry and other small forms of metalwork. So this was, this was like high-end jewelry, right? This was wonderfully and intricate, intricately beautiful metalwork. But the most beautiful thing about all of us, the pertinent point here is what verse 12 tells us. And you shall set the two stones on the shoulder pieces of the ephod as stones of remembrance. Stones of remembrance for the sons of Israel. In some ways we might say this goes both ways. The people, of course, were to remember the Lord, but no, the point here really, the emphasis at least, is that, that the Lord remembered his people. He wanted Aaron to bear their names, teaching them that he remembered them. He would, Aaron would bear their names before the Lord on his two shoulders for remembrance. God's people are, are never forgotten. They were not left behind and forgotten. They were remembered as they went in with the high priest, in union with him. And we see this union even more clearly then in the breast piece, which we read about 
in verses 15 through 30. The breastpiece we see was similar to the ephod in terms of style and in terms of the materials. Verse 16 tells us it was to be square-shaped and doubled, so the, the material folded over for strength uh, in length and breadth. It was to be a span, that is, nine inches, about the thumb to the, the pinky in length. But again, the important thing was that this was to hold all of these precious stones we read about in verses 17 through 21. Uh, the truth is we don't know exactly which Hebrew words identify which particular stones, but there were 12 of them. Uh, they were precious Stones. There were 12 of them, four rows of three, similar to the engravings on the ephod we see in verse 21, that, that those 12 stones were to have engraved on them the names of the sons or the names of the tw- uh, 12 tribes of Israel. Verses 22 to 28 show us how the, the breast piece was carefully, note that word, joined, we see. They were to be inseparably Joined. We're not going to look at all of these verses in detail, but they were joined together and they were also joined in what they taught about, here again, how the, the, the people of God were joined together with their high priest. We're told how Aaron would bear the names of the sons of Israel in the breastpiece of judgment on his heart. So here again, Aaron did not go in to the holy place Alone, The people were with him. They were right there on his breast, right there on his heart. And I would submit to you, we have before us such a, a wonderful picture of, of, of the work of Christ and our relationship with him. Christian, hear this well. You know, when, when Jesus put on his, his holy attire, as it were, and when he entered in, not into the earthly tabernacle, but when he went into the more perfect heavenly tabernacle, into heaven itself to offer that perfect sacrifice of himself, he didn't go alone, did he? He went there with you and with me on his heart. He brought you with him. Indeed, the Holy Spirit has, has united you to him, such that it must be so. You are inseparably joined to Christ. You are in union with him in his death and in his resurrection. His death is your death. His resurrection is your resurrection. He went there on your behalf, union with Christ. We are one with him. And that brings us to our second point this evening. In our union with him, we are justified in him. Obviously, the priesthood has taught us, and we see it in, in our text again this evening, such important things about such an important component of our justification, namely that our sins are forgiven through the work of the mediator who died in our place. He makes atonement through his sacrifice. That, that glorious truth is set before us again and again in all that pertains to the temple. But, but we also see the other aspect of our justification, which is that, that Christ has fulfilled the law for us as our representative. In union with him, then, his righteousness is imputed to us. You might ask the question, well, where do we see that in the text this evening? Well, look again at what we see in verse 30. So the, the breast piece there is, is called the breast piece of judgment. At the end of that verse says that Aaron was to, to bear the judgment of the people of Israel. I think the idea here 
is that Aaron was, was bearing on his heart God's judgment, that is, God's decisions, God's will for his people. We, we, we learn in verse 30 that, that there was there a, a, another thing on Aaron's heart, which was this thing uh, called the Urim and the Thummim. And we, we don't know exactly what this was. It seems that, that the, this was two objects, perhaps light and dark objects, stones or sticks. It seems they were stored in a pouch which was sewn into the, the, uh, the breastpiece and situated directly over the priest's heart. These were used to determine God's will, God's judgments. We can imagine, for example, when the people were trying to decide, should we or shall we or shall we not go into battle against this particular enemy? They would be seeking the Lord's will. At any rate, just think about this. So here, here Aaron represented the people just as Adam had represented the people. Aaron was, was sort of a, a second Adam, as it were, uh, picturing Christ the second Adam. But what the priest was called to be was held forth in contrast with, 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 uh, with what Adam had done, right? When Adam was confronted by the serpent in the garden, he should have kept the judgment of the Lord near his heart. He should have discerned the Lord's will as it had been clearly revealed. We think back to that language of Genesis chapter 3, knowing good and evil. We know that Adam chose to believe the lie. He chose to be, or he sought to be like God. His knowing good and evil then involved making a wrong judgment in rebellion against God. Adam should have known good and evil, that is, discerned the good from the evil, in submission to the Lord's revealed will. Really, Adam should have stood up and he should have done his, his priestly duty. He should have guarded the holiness of that garden tabernacle against, against this unclean outsider. Adam should have waged war and pronounced judgment against the serpent. But I want us to see clearly is how wonderfully then the, 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 the holy attire points to what Christ would do in contrast with the first Adam. Jesus is the one who would come and in every way he would keep God's judgment upon his heart for us. Jesus would conquer Satan by doing justly for us. Jesus discerned and fulfilled the will of God for us. That's the righteousness which we need and which he gives us, uh, which he works out for us as our representative. That righteousness is that which is given to us as a gift. Let's return to the, the what will I wear illustration, right? Friends, that's the clothing you need, isn't it? We need to be very careful that we're clothing ourselves only or looking to God to clothe us only with that because to draw near unto God in any other clothing but that of Christ is impossible. We'll do nothing but invite death, right? We rightly see the, the, the special clothing of the priest then as a picture of what Christ does for every believer in our justification. That's why we, we, we often rightly make use of the Zechariah chapter 3 prophecy. You may recall where the, the angel is speaking about the sinfulness of the corrupt 
priesthood, and he describes it using the, the language of filthy garments. But what does he say in Zechariah chapter 3, verse 4? He says, remove the filthy garments from him. And he says, behold, I have, I have taken your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And so on one level, of course, it speaks to the priesthood. The corrupted priesthood would be restored and purified in Christ. But that's a picture of what, what Christ does for every one of us. Another way of saying it is that, that he, he clothes our spiritual nakedness. Note how our text ends in verses 42 and 43. Aaron and sons are to have their naked flesh covered with those linen undergarments so that they do not bear guilt and die. This expounds the rule that we saw back in chapter 20, verse 26, about not approaching God's altar naked. This is another, another connection back to the Garden of Eden. After falling into sin, of course, Adam and Eve were suddenly ashamed of their, their nakedness. They needed to be covered They needed to be covered with those animal skins which the Lord so graciously provided. But there's the gospel. There's our doctrine of justification for all who trust in Christ and are united to him by faith. He clothes us. He clothes us in his righteousness. Just think on that this evening. As those who belong to Jesus, we don't need to worry, what shall I put on? What shall I wear? Even now we're clothed with the righteousness with which we shine. We shine with a beauty and a glory infinitely greater than even the the, the attire of the high priest. We shine with the righteousness of Christ in our union with him. We are justified. But our justification is not the only benefit which flows out of that union. Our third point then, we are sanctified in him. Holiness. Christ was, Christ is uniquely holy. The priests were were holy in a a way that the rest of the people were not. They were set apart for the holy work of ministering in the holy place that was reflected by the holy attire. And it helps us think so well about the holiness of God. You know, we, we read about the robe in verses 31 through 35. We see in verse 31 that the robe of the, the ephod was to be of blue. And verse 32, have an opening for the head in the middle with woven binding in order to give it strength, prevent it from, from tearing. We see in verses 33 through 34 that all around the hem was to be that that pattern of, of a golden bell and a pomegranate. Golden bell and a pomegranate. Pomegranates perhaps pointing back again to the Garden of Eden, a picture of that, that place of abundant fruit. But what about the bells? These, there were actual bells here. What was the function of these bells? The function of the bells speaks so powerfully to the holiness of the Lord. Look at verse 38, 35. Where we read it says that it it shall be on Aaron when he ministers and its sound shall be heard when he goes into the holy place before the Lord and when he comes out so that he does not die. So it was a serious thing to enter in as well as to depart then 
from the holy place. You know, this was, this was not to be done lightly, right? You weren't to simply casually or flippantly walk in or walk out, certainly not irreverently. It could, it could result in death. The bells serve to give something of an announcement, a way of, of, of signifying, uh, I'm coming in, I'm going out. You didn't dare approach the Lord without announcing that you were coming or, or leave. The ringing perhaps also enabled the people to, be, to hear what was going on since they themselves were not able to enter in and certainly wouldn't have been appropriate, I, I don't think, for the high priest to kind of be yelling messages from within the holy of holies certainly was not to be carrying on a loud conversation while doing his holy work. But those outside, they could hear those bells and they could know that their, their priest was carrying on. He was doing their work. He was representing them. But oh, oh how all of this so powerfully communicated holiness and as if all of the holiness symbolism were not enough, just note how we see it stated explicitly at the end of verse 36. Note those, note those words, holy to the Lord. Those words, like the engraving of a signet, they were to be in, engraved on that plate of pure gold. And where was that plate with those words to be placed? Well, right there on Aaron's forehead, as we see in verses 37 and 38 fastened right there on the front of that turban by a cord of blue. But here again, think about union, representation. It was not only the priests who were set apart as holy. That, that holy clothing was a picture of what all God's people were called to be. They were all called to be priests, weren't they? And we saw that back in, in uh, chapter 19, verses 5 and 6. All of the people were, were commanded, Obey my voice, keep my covenant, you will be my treasured possession, and you shall become to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And here we see that reflected in verse 38, where, where the priest's work served to consecrate the holy gifts of the people, their gifts were consecrated. Those gifts became holy and acceptable to the Lord, while those consecrated holy gifts really symbolize the people themselves. And so the work of the priests served to consecrate the people and make them holy and acceptable as God's holy people. Of course, here again, this, this picture is exactly what Christ does for us. It pictures who we are, and what we are called to be as those who are in him. Sanctification. This is a benefit which flows out of our union with Christ. It's one enjoyed by every believer. No one can say, yeah, I'm a believer in the Lord. Yes, I belong to the Lord. No one can claim that who knows nothing of the Lord's sanctifying grace in his or her life. Earlier in our affirmation of faith, we confessed what we believe about sanctification, that it involves, as the last line says there, the practice of true holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. That comes right out of Scripture, doesn't it? Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 14. We, we, we will not see the Lord. We will not go to heaven by our holy works, but nor shall we go to heaven and see the Lord without 
holy works. Every true believer is united to Christ, and a benefit of that union is sanctification. Sanctification. We can speak of two kinds of sanctification. There's, there's what we call definitive sanctification. In union with Christ, we are those who have been definitively sanctified, set apart as holy, like everything which was used for the tabernacle, right? Everything we've seen, the gold, the other precious metals, the precious stones, the vessels, the instruments, the holy attire, the priests themselves, they had been consecrated and set apart as holy, and so have we in Christ. Indeed, we can think, think also of our, our regeneration. We, we, we confess that and what we believe about sanctification, right? Uh, our regeneration is a work that has been completed definitively. God has made us holy and that the Holy Spirit has given us new birth. The Holy Spirit has taken up residence in us. He's removed our hearts of stone and replaced them with hearts of flesh which love God and love God's holy commandments. For every one of us who is in Christ, we can, we can say that we bear the judgment of God upon our hearts. His law is written. His will is written upon our hearts. And we know, of course, that, that that enjoins upon us the duty then to live as God's holy people, to live holy lives, dying unto sin, living unto righteousness, just as we earlier confessed. What, what, what does that mean? Well, we can go right back to the, the what shall we wear illustration, right? We're getting a lot of mileage out of that, that metaphor, clothing metaphor, but that's because the Bible makes much of that that metaphor. We think of the way Paul describes sanctification, that, that process of dying to sin and living unto righteousness, using the very language of putting off filthy clothing and putting on new, clean clothes. Think about his command to the church in Ephesus, Ephesians chapter 4, 22 to 24. They were commanded to put off Put off your old self, he writes, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Or Colossians chapter 3, 12 through 14. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. You might not be the kind of person that stands in front of the beer and gives a whole lot of thought to what you're putting on, right? in terms of your physical clothing. And frankly, it doesn't matter all that much, right? If your wife wants you to dress a little bit nicer, listen to her, fine, right? But every one of us has a duty to be standing in front of the mirror and taking a good look at ourselves, thinking about our character, thinking about our conduct. God is is every bit as much concerned about that, what we're putting on, as he was about the, 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 the holy attire of the high priest. God desires that you and I stand in front of the mirror and, 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 and not quickly forget what we see, right? 
see ourselves rightly, see ourselves in the light of God's holy word. He, of course, desires us to remember who we are in Christ, but he wants and desires us to see those areas where we need to grow in Christ, grow in holiness, to identify those areas where we say, yeah, I need to put off that filthy, soiled garment and put on clean clothing. I need to adorn myself with holiness. Look carefully then how you walk, writes Paul, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15. Not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil, verse 17. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. So just like the high priest, the Christian is called then to walk with the with the judgment of God, with the will of God, discerning the God's, God's will uh, right there on our hearts. God's will, God's will, your sanctification, First Thessalonians 5, or 4, 3 and 4, this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. Brothers and sisters, let us be those who pursue holiness, holiness, sanctification in view of our glorification. Our last point this evening in union with Christ, we are glorified in him. I'm going to be very brief, but just end on this marvelous thought because we pursue holiness in the hope that a day will come. And it may not be long. A day will come when we will see the Holy One. And what will we wear? (laughs) Never again will we fret over that question because we will be given that glorious attire, the very clothing of heaven itself. The blue, the purple, the scarlet yarns, the gold, all of these glorious, beautiful, for, for glory and beauty, these materials of the priestly garment, these were the same materials, think on this, the very same materials of which the tabernacle itself was made, and the tabernacle was a, was a picture of the glorious place, heaven itself. Of course, it also points back to Eden, the, the gold and the onyx and Precious stones, a description of that, that original garden. The, the, the precious stones are also mentioned in Ezekiel chapter 28 when Ezekiel dis- looks back and describes Eden. But these things so wonderfully point forward to the new creation, the new Jerusalem. Revelation 21.19 tells us that the foundations of the wall of the city were, or, were adorned with every kind of jewel. Beautiful. This is our hope. This is our future. This is how we're to see ourselves, of course, even now as, as the church in union with Christ as his body. That's why Peter also writes that, that even now we are those living stones, right? We are being built up as that spiritual house, that holy priesthood as we, we offer those, those spiritual acceptable sacrifices to God through Jesus Christ. And indeed, in union with Christ, 
Indeed, in union with with the Lord Jesus, who in his resurrection glory is already there in the presence of the Father, shining with all of his radiance and his glory in union with him. We are all, and we saw a wonderful picture of that even in this morning's text, didn't we? And we are already there in union with him, already made, made glorious. But a day will come when we will experience all of these present realities in their fullness in glory. Another way to say it is we will, we will lay aside these earthly garments. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom. Therefore, a day will come. A day will come when this perishable body will put on the imperishable and this mortal body will put on immortality. God will say to us, in a sense, what he was or say to us what, in a sense, he was already saying to the high priest, come, come, I'm clothing you. You belong with me. You belong in my presence. God will say that to each one of us. You belong with me, and I'm going to clothe you with my own glory. We will see Christ in all of his beauty and his glory, and we will be like him. It will be for glory and for beauty And we will desire, delight in being in his presence, worshiping him in the beauty of his holiness forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray together. We praise you. We thank you. We love you, Lord. We bless you for it. We bless you for your holiness and for your beauty, your glory revealed to us in our great high priest, Christ Jesus. Father, we're thanking you this evening for every blessing, every benefit, all that is ours in our union with him. And Father, we pray that the word which we have received this day would so fill us and change us as you work in us by your Holy Spirit to make us more like him, that we would, yes, walk before you in all holiness, that your holy name might be exalted and praised, magnified and glorified. We ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen.